Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. They were DEA partners and awarded the Columbia National Police Medal of Distinguished Service. The men who spent six years taking down narco-terrorist Pablo Escobar. In 1993, Steve was present during the chase and shooting that resulted in the death of Escobar. They are senior consultants in the Netflix show, Narcos, and lecture around the country on drug trafficking and security-related challenges. The co-founders of a law enforcement private consulting firm, please welcome to the show, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, Tommy. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, appreciate it, Tommy. Glad to be on here. I'm going to start a little background on both of you. Steve, I'll start with you. Criminal justice major, started in 1975, spent 37 years in law enforcement, began as a police officer in a big small town called Bluefield, West Virginia, was a deputy assistant administrator of the DEA, and in 1987 became a special agent. You retired in 2013, and some of your early assignments include Miami, Greensboro, and Columbia, and also spent time in Atlanta in the high-intensity drug trafficking area. Steve, what was it about some of those early assignments that helped you throughout the longevity of your career? Um, I don't know how to do anything else, Tommy. <laughs> but I caught my whole life. <laughs> now, it was it's funny because I, uh, as you mentioned, I started in 1975 in West Virginia, and, and uh I was only 19 years old. I turned 19 in October. I got hired in November. Now, back then, you know, they provided your uniform and stuff like that, but you had to provide your own weapon and your gun belt and all your leather gear. I wasn't old enough to buy a gun, and I couldn't buy bullets. <laughs> but I could carry a gun and put you in jail and shoot you if I needed to. You know what I mean? It's kind of funny how it all worked out. But it's uh, I want to be a cop since I was a kid. You know, I, you know the old saying, you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. Found that job, buddy. That's awesome. Javier, sociology and psychology major. You were a deputy sheriff from 1976 to 1984, 30 years of service, and you're an expert in the meddling cartel. In 1988, you volunteered as a DEA in Columbia. You're a senior executive service in San Francisco from 2004. You led the Caribbean DEA office, and you oversaw the DE operations in Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Dominican Republic, Barbados, Haiti, and Trinidad. Retired in 2014 as a special agent in charge. The question I have for you is, what was it like for you? Was it an awakening going from working in Texas and then all of a sudden now you're in Colombia? It was a huge awakening. And and if I can just tell you a little bit, uh, working in Austin, Texas, I was working small cases, a lot of undercover, ounce buys, you know, ounce of of coke, ounce of heroin. Uh, We're still buying, you know, ecstasy. So, you know what, Tommy, I've always wanted to, I did four years in Austin, a great time. And Austin was the music capital of the world at that time, had fun. And I always wanted to go see what the big leagues were all about. So I applied. I applied for Mexico. I mean, I applied for Colombia and they gave me Mexico, which is, <laughs> so that was a, really with me, everything has been sort of a mistake. So I ended up in uh, Colombia in uh, 1988. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad I did it. I, I got to learn. I got to see the worst of the worst uh, traffickers in the world. So it was it was a challenge, but everything in my career has been sort of a mistake, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> 
Either one of you want to answer this, or maybe you both do. What is the trust you two have for each other, and how did that grow over time? Well, for me, it was – I came into a great situation. I didn't know Javier before I got to Bogota. Um, and, you know, when you go to these offices, you don't know what operation you're going to be assigned to. So I didn't know I was going to work the Escobar investigation. Uh, but when I got there, Javier was teamed up with a guy named Gary Sheridan, who uh, still a good friend of ours. And uh, Gary and I had some mutual acquaintances in the law enforcement community. And so that just kind of broke the ice. And we got to be friends. And he introduced me to Javier. And then uh, I started doing a little work with him on the side in the office there. And then Gary got promoted and transferred to Barranquilla. So they just, it was a natural progression for me to fall into Gary's slot there. Um, Javier won't tell you this. He's kind of a legend in DEA. And so, to, you know, to be able to work with this guy was, that was a pretty t- cool thing. And it's, you know, we started, we met in 1991, June 91. We've been partners to this day. I mean, now we have, you know, after retirement, we've got a couple businesses on the side that we do and some TV stuff and podcasts and, and interviews and, I mean, everything that goes along with it. And uh, the cool thing is, if you've seen the series Narcos, it shows us shoving each other around and, f- and fighting and cussing each other out. We've never even had a disagreement. <laughs> it's just, it's a great partnership. Two guys versus the one guy responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine. He smuggled 15 tons of cocaine per day by using planes, commercial packages, and any creative ideas, listeners, that you can think of to smuggle cocaine. This really wasn't, or was it a war on drugs when it's you two guys versus basically the world? Yeah, that's a great point. The war on drugs, right? So it's uh, me and Mr. Murphy there. Yeah. <laughs> Pablo Escobar. And, and you know what you hit around the head as far as the, the creativity that this guy had first, I just want a great question. Great. Uh, you know, this guy, you know, he, he was smuggling, like you said, on, on airplanes, on ships, on human traffickers, heavy machinery. We saw, we saw a smuggle inside fruits, who puts it inside fruits, uh, inside women's buttocks? They sew it in, you know, uh, poor lady was, you know, dying and they just cut it off and, you know, just kill her. But uh, the, the creativity that uh, that Pablo Escobar had, we had never seen someone of this caliber before. So it was new for us. Remember, like I said, when he started the terrorism, it's like car bombs. Who in the hell is placing car bombs? Who's assassinating? You know, how do you get you? We had never worked a a trafficker of this caliber before. So it was an eye opener. When did you two guys realize that or was it right away that it's going to take more than just you two to bring this guy down? Well, you know, we get a lot of credit for uh, for bringing Pablo down, and you know, we did have our part. We played our part there, but you know, we were the we were the two case agents, is what we call it, in you know, in, in DEA that were living in Colombia, the sign to the case. But it was certainly much more than that. You know, we were we had the Colombian National Police there. We were working with the Colombian military to a, a smaller degree. Uh, the CIA was there, who that really wasn't a pleasant experience. But that's kind of another story. But the the backup there in Bogota, you had other agents there who were uh, available to assist. We had uh, a really strong intel analyst section there that was phenomenal working with us, Vi Parrish and, and Lynn Shannon and some of the other folks in that office that worked. Plus, you had headquarters. And then DEA has the largest footprint of federal law enforcement outside the United States of any U.S. federal law enforcement agency. 
I think they're in, I don't know, was it 71 countries now, Javier, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what that would do is, is we uh, gained information. We could disseminate leads out, not only to the United States, but around the world. And in turn, as they collected information, they would feed that back to us. So uh, that's kind of how the, it, it's, it wasn't just Javier and Steve out there right. doing their thing. You know, there were lots and lots of people playing in this and, and we just got the credit for it. You guys live with, a group of handpicked guys from the Columbia National Police. With so much corruption going on, how did you know you could trust them? Yes. Uh, you know what? That's at the beginning, that was a problem, Tommy, that we had a group, but they were from Medellin. I would say about, you know, uh, 30% of the group was from Medellin. We did not know them. So uh, all of a sudden, we started seeing, man, our, our, our operation has been compromised. Pablo Escobar knows we're coming. So we started, you know what? We started realizing that Pablo Escobar, what he did, very ingenious. He got to this people's family members. You know, we had about five guys, higher level from Medellin. Then all of a sudden, Pablo went to the family and says, hey, if your kid doesn't call you to call me or call me directly, if they're coming, you know, where they're coming, uh, there's an operation on me and where they're going to hit me. If he doesn't tell you or tell me, I'm going to kill your kid and then I'm going to go and kill you all. So that got back to the officer. So we had a lot of compromise at the beginning of operations being ruined. And we saw it firsthand. So all of a sudden we uh, strategized and said, guys, you know what? We just need to bring in people that are not from Medellin, and that's what uh, helped. So we brought in handpicked people, people that Steve and I already knew in Bogota. Mm -hmm. There was a unit called the Dihin, which is a specialized, it's like their, their intel unit. So these guys were friends of ours. We worked with them. So we slowly started bringing them in, and you know what? The, the corruption stopped. There were no more phone calls to Pablo Escobar. Gentlemen, was the goal to seize drugs in Colombia, or was it to kill Escobar? You know, that was uh, this is what was a little bit different from uh, for us having worked in the United States. When we got down there, when and especially once once Escobar escaped from his custom built prison and then the next 18 months was that second manhunt. The Columbia National Police made it very plain to us. And we're living with these guys every day. We're living in Medellin with them on the police base. They say, guys, we're not in this to seize drugs. We're not in this to seize money. We're in this to capture and kill Pablo Escobar. And the reason was because he had killed over 1,000 police officers in Colombia. He had killed tens of thousands of innocent people with his indiscriminate car bombs and his assassinations and so forth. And they were just fed up. And you know what? I mean, after being with him and living with him and see what they went through, uh, you can understand that. There was a funeral that Javier and I went to where eight of our police friends were killed in one operation. You know, and things like that, they – you it it brings a complete different picture in your mind and a complete different understanding of what's going on and why they think the way they do. And, and if I can add to that, uh, Pablo Escobar was personally targeting the police. He wanted to kill as many police officers as he could during what we call the war on Colombia you know, created from Pablo Escobar, he put bounties on police officers. Can you imagine a 
$100 a head for any Sicario that would kill any police officer. Thousands, hundreds and thousands, and then the car bombs. So that's why the police, and you know what? We don't blame them. It was personal for them. Uh, like Steve said, it, it, it was it was a revenge because of, of all the police that Pablo was targeting. And then uh, it got personal when he started targeting our uh, our main colonel was a guy by the name of Colonel Hugo Martinez, a real hero in Colombia. He was the boss of our search block. So all of a sudden, Pablo is targeting the colonel and his family, trying to kill his wife, his kids. So that's why it, it, it was personal. And that's why the, the police did not ever back down from Pablo Escobar because of all the police officers that he killed. Listeners, go to the show notes, DEANarcos.com. and put a link there. You got to get your hands on the book. These guys are authors of Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Make sure you get your hands on this read. You were speaking of bounties, Javier. Is it true that there were bounties placed on yourself and Steve for 300000 each? Yes, it is true. 300000 and we heard it on wiretaps, uh, you know, uh, electronic wiretaps. At that time, <laughs> it was, uh, if you're a U.S. law enforcement, you know what, you got to write like a Bible to get up on the person's <laughs> phone. They're in Colombia, you just pay a phone guy, and <laughs> we'd be up on the phone. So phone, phone intercept, we were doing a lot, and we used to hear that, uh, you know, I mean, we were the only two gringos assigned to the search block of Bloque de Búsqueda. So everybody knew it. In, in the search block was an old police base, and it was basically like, like in the middle of a, you know, of a neighborhood. So people knew who we were. We went out with the cops. We'd go out for, you know, beers and burgers at the end of the ship, that little bar there right outside the bed. So everybody knew who we were. So, yes, uh, Pablo had $300,000 on us. And uh, like I said, this is a scary, scary feeling. Uh, so Pablo knew exactly who we were. I'm going to talk about what I'm going to call not the deal of a lifetime, but the deal that is unfathomably made Pablo Escobar made with his country that he would plead guilty to one crime while he would be absolved of every other crime he committed. He was sentenced to five years in a custom made prison where he hired his own prison guards and then somehow made a rule where the police weren't allowed to come within two miles of this prison. I'm sure you guys have never heard anything like this ever before or ever since. The fact that he could make this deal shows you the power he had. Was this prison a resort? What was this prison like? You know what it was? And, and I mean, there were other things. He handpicked his own prisoners. There are only 14 prisoners counting Pablo, one of his brother, <laughs> um, you know, and then his, his most trusted Sicarios assassins that were there to protect him. He paid the guards. So who do you think they're loyal to? Right. And he got a five year prison sentence. And when he was absolved of every crime that included thousands of murders. And then when you look at his assets, there were no stipulations to take any of his assets. So after five years in prison in this, in this country club, as we found out, he was, he got to keep all the money. I mean, that's, you know, when you're in this business, you can, you can hurt people, uh, you know, when you put them in jail, but when you take their stuff, you can make them cry because that's why they're all in it for the, the wealth and the ego and the greed and all that. The power goes along with her, that self-perceived power. But uh, it was 
<laughs> You're right. We've never heard of a deal like this before or since. And when we got in, when he escaped the very next day, Javier and I flew up to Medellin and we went into prison. And that's when we started living in Colombia for the next 18 months. And we saw, we saw what we had suspected that, it, you know, when you got to the front of the prison, there were two sets of steel bars, which are, you know, kind of indicative of a penal environment. But once you got inside those bars, it was wide open. They had a nightclub in there. Pablo's, you know, prison cell was a two room suite with a jacuzzi tub and a walk-in closet. Uh, the other prisoners, they had two room suites. They had a, a professional grade soccer field. They had these cabanas and chalets that were being built on the house on the uh, outside of the prison on the hillside behind it. And to go up there, we just went to the back fence and there wasn't a gate. There was just a gaping hole. So you could come and go in into this prison as you saw fit. And it's documented where Pablo would leave the prison whenever he wanted to. If he wanted to go to a new restaurant, if he wanted to go to a soccer game, if he wanted to go spend the night with his family, he just came and went as he pleased. I mean, it's it's the most ridiculous plea bargain we've ever heard in our lives. You hit the nail on the head. Guys, was he more dangerous after he escaped? You know what? Uh, there were we we categorized there's there were two wars. The the first one was. You know the when when all the violence, the the bombings, the car bombings. There was a commercial airline killing a presidential candidate. That was before. After his escape, after like Steve talked about that deal of a lifetime, where uh, basically you know five years, and that five years it was going to turn into about two or three years. They were going to let him out, but you know that's what was on paper. After he he escaped, it took a while for him to get organized because he was running. But once he put that empire, once he put that uh, cartel back together again, it was just as violent. He started, but I, I, I like to categorize the second time we had him on the run. He was still strong. He was still bombing, killing. Uh, so, I mean, he was violent both times. <laughs> he, he, he was running. and uh, But like I said, the, the second time, I, I always like to think that, you know, he was on the run. He, he never really got organized. And one thing that happened, and uh, Steve hit it on the head right now, was that we were taking out his cartel in the Miami area, in the New York area. Uh, we were simultaneously taking down people working for him. So he was getting weaker and weaker. And during the first search, you know what? People were afraid. They Nobody wanted to go against Escobar. The second time, people started like, hey, this guy may be taken down. And then I think uh, the trick that finally did it was well, also we put a five, $5 million reward from the U.S. <laughs> on him. So we had a lot of people calling in about where he was. So they wanted the money. Pablo was said to be worth around 30 billion, which I don't know if it's true or not, but that would be around 64 billion these days. Do you guys know what was he spending his money on? I understand he buried some of it and some of it to this day is still uncovered. Is that all factual? Yeah, he was, you know, he spent a lot of money on, on, uh, he invested in a lot of real estate, uh, his famous ranch, Hacienda Napoles, uh, Finca Napoles, you know, he did have the exotic animals out through the zoo. I mean, it, he had rhinos, hippos, giraffes, elephants, zebras, just about anything you could think of. I don't remember seeing any monkeys down there, but that's about the only thing we didn't see. Um, it is true that he was uh, hiding money. Uh, Javier's got a good story about a, a farmer that saw some money that uh, he tried to snag. 
uh, even after right before our retirement, Javier and I, we went to the DEA Jacksonville, Florida office, and uh, they were working an investigation and we, you know, helped with some background stuff with them. And they ended up seizing $80 million out of a bank account over in Europe. Um, and, and that's the thing. There's probably multiple bank accounts like that around the world. Uh, in Spanish, I think they call it testaferros, where, you know, I'd come to you and Tommy say, listen, I'm, I want you to go open me a bank account to make this deposit for me. And then you give me the bank book and I might kill you afterwards, you know, because I don't want you to know where that money is. I mean, that's that's how ruthless this guy was. So there's there's bank accounts that will never be found. Uh, there was a show that that uh, came out for one season only finding Escobar's millions. And um, Javier and I were going to be on the show. We actually flew down to Medellin and for a couple of days and just filmed an introduction with them. And then they got a couple of former CIA guys that were kind of the face of the show, but uh, they ran that for a season and they didn't find anything. So I, uh, it's out there. It's, but you, Javier's got to tell you about the farmer. <laughs> yeah. So after Escobar uh, gets, uh, you know, after he gets killed. So we hear a story about the farmer that collected some money. So we, we located the farmer, nice guy. And uh, so we went out and talked to him. And he said, yeah, he said, you know what? I was, you know, my little farms on the side of a river. I was milking the cows. And I was, all of a sudden, I started seeing these bags coming down the river. So I said, let me go, you know, check out, you know. So he was able to get collect like two or three bags. About It was like three, four $400,000. And we let him keep the money. But anyway, <laughs> he said, the, the farmer says, you know what? There was like five, six other bags going down the river. So we asked him, why didn't you get them? He said, I couldn't. I had to go back, finish milking the cows. <laughs> <laughs> so like Steve said, there is a lot of money. And he used to kill the calateros. The calateros, the guy who used to hide it. So uh, we've heard lots of stories where there's money there. But the problem is it's going to be hard to locate. Most of it has been, you know, deteriorated by the weather conditions. And nobody knows where those caletas are because everybody's dead. You know, probably used to kill the guy who hit him. Uh, and I went back to Colombia in 1999. And while at the embassy, we were getting a lot of people. But it, it was they they were out there trying to hunt, you know, for you know, but it's uh, it's going to be very very hard to get them. Like I said, they're going to come out one of those days, but it's going to be deteriorated, you know, because of the weather conditions. Gentlemen, how deep was the corruption there? Well, <laughs> um, after Escobar was dead, the uh, it was it was later proven that the Cali cartel had donated. I think it was over a million dollars to a certain presidential candidate who eventually was elected president of Columbia. So it was, it went, you know, I mean, you can say right there, it went to the top. Now, when, when we were there, Cesar Gaviria was the president. I don't think he was corrupt. Um, but you had the attorney general back then. And, and in Colombia, the attorney general is different than it is in the United States where the, our president appoints the attorney general in Colombia, the attorney general is elected separately from the president, so he doesn't have any loyalties to the president. He kind of acts autonomously. Uh, and that's the guy, Gustavo de Grief, who's, who's uh, he's passed away now. But he's the guy that came up with that self-surrender program that Escobar took advantage of. So never any proof that, that uh, the attorney general was corrupt. But, I mean, man, it just, you know, where there's smoke, there's usually fire, right? All right. Agreed. Yeah. There were, at the beginning, there was police officers, there was politicians. I remember congressmen probably used to bribe certain congress members 
to not to vote for extradition. That, that was Pablo Escobar's big fight. It was all over extradition. So it was unconstitutional. Then after Escobar kills a presidential candidate, there's a move to make it, you know, uh, legal. And Pablo was bribing as many congressmen as possible to vote against extradition. So a lot of congressmen took money. Uh, plus, you know, plus he also had that old uh, verbiage saying plato or plomo. You want a bullet or you want some money? You know, basically they'd approach him, judge, for example, briefcase, $100,000 if the judge didn't uh, basically release the charges on Escobar would kill him. So that was one of his big motives. So that's why, you know, that saying you want a plata or plomo, you want a bullet or you want some money. That's where that came from. Listeners, there's no possible way we're going to get to everything that happened for six years while these guys were hunting down Escobar. But I can tell you how you can get it all. And that's go to DEANarcos.com and buy the book, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. And if you ask real nicely on there, these two gentlemen might just sign you a copy of the book as well. But get your hands on the book. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to ask you a loaded question. I don't know who wants to take it. Talked about it before. How many thousands of people and the different types of people that Escobar would kill just no matter what. Hundreds of hitmen, whatever they are. There was a guy, I believe, under Pablo in Mexico who was said to be even more dangerous than Escobar. Were these two guys connected? Gustavo Gavaria, what did he mean to Pablo? Okay. Basically, they were not connected. El Chapo was a lot younger than, than Pablo Escobar. Escobar's uh, violence, as you had it, was basically because of the extradition process. And, and Pablo was, uh, ba you know, I mean, we saw the, like we talked about earlier, the, the car bombs. Who puts car bombs? 10 to 15 on a daily basis. And then he was so proud that he would drop a leaflet saying it's from the extraditables. And everybody knew the extraditables was headed by Pablo Escobar. The bounties on police officers, the assassinations of political judges, Candidates, And I think, you know, uh, he also put a bomb on a commercial airline, Avianca Airline, 1989. He put a bomb. He thought that uh, we've mentioned him that Gaviria, President Gaviria was going to be on that plane. He was he was not on that plane, but 107 innocent people get killed by a bomb placed by Pablo Escobar. Then what I think what broke the monkey, the camel's back was when he killed the presidential candidate, Luis Carlos Galan, who was going to win. Next president of Colombia, he hated Escobar. So Escobar killed him in the middle of a rally, of a political rally. So the violence we had never seen before. But Pablo and Chapo, like I said, they, they never met each other. Chapo was too young. Uh, just real quick, the Mexico violence is based more on intimidation, trying to, all right, if you snitch on me or if you're not letting me let the dope cross this, what's going to happen? They have, you know, they have the heads rolling on dance floors, right? They, they have the bodies hanging. So it was two different. They're both terrorists, but Pablo was, I think, uh, you know, wrote the book on it. And real quick, Gustavo Gaviria that you mentioned was Pablo Escobar's cousin, and we, he never got the fame because uh, he was the head of the distribution network. In other words, he had the hooks in Mexico, Panama, General Moriega, remember him, uh, Caribbean uh, countries. So it was, and they were cousins. They, they grew up together. They loved each other. But Gustavo Gaviria was the brains for the drug distribution. Were there any times where your case 
the hunt down Escobar was almost shut down. And if so, how many times did that happen? Yeah, they're uh, towards the end. Um, well, and I think in January, so Pablo was killed December 93. In early 93 is when the group Los Pepes came around. And now you got to understand Los Pepes is nothing more than a murderous group of vigilantes, which we don't condone. But the truth of the story is they actually had a lot to do with bringing Pablo down. And what they did is they used Pablo's tactics against him. So, you know, Pablo would, if he went to, if he wanted to kill you, Tommy, he would not only kill you he'd kill your entire family, your parents, your wife's parents, your your pet. I mean, it was, it was extremely vicious. And so the, those peppies used that against him and they did the same thing to him. Now we, we did have, uh, the U.S. Navy Delta uh, SEAL Team 6 with us, and we had the U.S. Army's Delta Force with us living there at the base. But they were they were restricted to base. In fact, we were all restricted to base. Um, I guess the difference is they're military and they follow orders, and we're DEA, and we kind of look at them as suggestions. You know, we broke a lot of rules. We broke a lot of policies and procedures. We never broke the law down there, though. But as Los Pepes uh, continued to have successes, they got more brazen, and so they they killed two attorneys that were associated with Pablo Escobar one day. Well, one of the attorneys had his 10-year-old kid with him, and they killed the kid as well. And and Javier told you how, uh, well, Pablo had this saying from the extraditables, we prefer a tomb in Colombia to a jail cell in the United States. And he had this card. And so when they would kill people, they'd throw that card down because they wanted everybody to get the message out. Well, those peppies, when they would kill somebody, they'd take a piece of cardboard and they'd write a message, hey, Pablo, this is for you, Los Pepes, or something like that. And they put one of those card pieces of cardboard on a 10-year-old kid. That started to turn public opinion away from Los Pepes. Uh, we didn't have uh, Special Operations Command in the United States at that time. They had Southern Command, which was located in Panama, and they controlled the military units in Columbia, U.S. military units. So they were uh, they were going to pull the special operators out. And I mean, I'll tell you, he'll tell you the same thing I'm getting ready to tell you. Those guys are the studs of the freaking world. I mean, they... Delta and, and SEAL Team 6, we have the utmost respect. We make no bones about it. If we're ever kidnapped, that's who we want to come and get us because we've seen their capabilities and what they could do. I mean, do you want to meet a stud? Meet one of those guys. They're just phenomenal. But um, so anyway, uh, Southern Command decided to pull them out because of the political pressure of Los Pepes. And our ambassador at the time was uh, Morse Busby. He was a retired uh, lieutenant commander, I think, with the Navy. But he was a can-do kind of guy, and he called the White House. He called State Department. He got it all stopped. So they stayed with us. They were there the day Pablo was killed. So, yeah, there was there was some discussion about pulling the gringos out. But, you know, everybody knew we were – and that was really close to the end time when we were getting really, really close to Pablo. So thank goodness we had the ambassador we had. And our boss, Joe Toff, he was instrumental in keeping us in place as well. Steve, you were actually there on the day that Pablo was shot. And there's photos. If you guys want to see him online, you can search Steve's name and there's pictures of that. But Javier, you were not there. Where were you at at the time? And how did you hear that Pablo Escobar had been killed? Yes. The day before the ambassador calls me and the ambassador is like the president, you know, when you're in another country. And he basically ordered me to go to Miami because there was an informant. Uh, nicknamed Navigante, who's for real, kind of famous out there. And I had worked with him before, and uh, he called the ambassador, says that he knew where Escobar was. However, 
He will only give me the information. So the ambassador orders me to go to Miami. I try to argue with the ambassador saying, sir, we're close to Pablo. We were, we have him located. The ambassador didn't care. So when I, it's funny, uh, the irony, when I get to Miami, the, the, the informants on the phone and he drops the informants and says, yeah, they just killed Pablo Escobar. <laughs> so I got on the flight on the way back and I met Steve and our cops the next day. And just to clarify something, Tommy, uh, during that operation, the, the narco series shows I was on the roof. That's not true. I was back at the base with Colonel Martinez. I was in his office as the operation was going down. Uh, and after, you know, we're all in, I'm in there with, with the Colonel's executive staff and, you know, it, it got real quiet. He's issuing orders and it gets real quiet. That's when the, we now know was, that's when the gun battle was going on. And, uh, and then one of the majors that's on the operation comes up on the radio says, Viva Columbia, Pablo's dead. Well, that's, you know, we, I had to report to the embassy quickly what was going on. And then, you know, we're, we're getting the troops together to go out to the scene and you got to run back to the barracks and get your gear and cameras and your weapons and all that stuff. Um, and actually when I came out, <laughs> it had taken so long, the entire search block was gone. 600, the only people there were the guards on the gates. And I'm thinking, Oh crap, you know what I'm going to do now? Well, lo and behold, Colonel Martinez came driving back up to get his camera, his movie camera. And he came driving in. He's like, Steve, what are you doing? They, they couldn't, for whatever reason, they had a hard time saying Steve. So my nickname down there was always Steve, Stick. He's like, Stick, what are you doing? And I said, Colonel, I need a ride out there. And he's like, get your butt in the car. Let's go. So I rode out after Pablo was dead. That's just uh, one of the many examples of literary licensing that was <laughs> utilized in the Narco series. But I do want to point out that, you know, uh, and we point this out to every audience we speak to, the one part that's true in there is Javier really did have all those girlfriends. He really was a man slut. <laughs> like I told people, I wish I would have had all those girlfriends, Javier. <laughs> I was going to say, if that's the case, Javier, when you come to Vegas next month, we got to talk. <laughs> like I said, I wish it would have been true. <laughs> Gentlemen, after six years of tracking down Escobar, how long did it take to you guys to get back to life? at a normal rate? Well, you know, I, I left around November, December of, uh, of that year. Steve left a lot earlier, but we just went back and, uh, you know, we still work cases. I was promoted as a group supervisor in Puerto Rico, and it was just same type of action, but just a little different. It was a little bit slower, uh, however, and you just, you know, we still work cases, but, you know, I guess the biggest one in our career, you know, has been the Escobar case. Guys, there's the book. We've talked about Manhunters, but you also have a world speaking tour in its seventh year that is an adventure that shows videos and photos and allows you guys to tell the story of Pablo Talk a little bit about this speaking tour. Well, it's, um, and thank you for bringing that up. It's uh, the last thing we ever thought we would be doing. Uh, COVID, the four years before COVID, we were literally traveling the world. We've been on every continent except Africa and, and Antarctica. We were supposed to go to Africa the year that COVID hit. Of course, it was canceled. But we were averaging about 75 appearances a year. And our show uh, will tell the true story of Pablo Escobar. It's not what you might've seen in Narcos. It's not what you might've seen in other books that have been written about Pablo Escobar. We tell the true story and we use the, the photographs that we have or photographs we took. So, you know, so we own, we have ownership of them. We actually try to incorporate humor. I mean, you can tell I'm, I'm the idiot of the group here and, and uh, I just, I like to have fun. And, and so 
Uh, it works out real well for us. Now that COVID is slowing down, uh, we were just in Chicago at the city winery there a few weeks ago. That was our first public appearance in over two years, I think. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the corporate events and college events and, and uh, things like that are starting to roll in again. And it's uh, what I can say is you'll hear the true story. At the end of every show, we have a Q&A, so you can, there's an intermission in between. You can send us questions, and, uh, you know, we all, we usually throw the stupid ones out, like, you know, did you did you snort all the cocaine you seized? Well, nobody can snort that much cocaine. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but it's it's a blast. I mean, the, the people get into it. We can make people laugh, and and, uh, and then we like to meet people afterwards, so they'll stick around, and we go out and do photos and things like that. So it's, we're having a blast. Life's good. Yeah. And we use our actual photos and videos and it's really, it, we call it also a lesson in history. This is what really happened. And it's uh, from Steve and I's eyes as we were present and we, you know, we'll take the audience to the real cocaine labs, you know, the Finconopolis, you know, and then it's basically the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar. One of the big things is we take them inside of Pablo's prison so they can see for themselves what our joke that freaking place was. And, and his uh, finca, Naples, the zoo, and the hippos real quick. I don't know if you know, Tom, but the, I think he had like four hippos. After he gets killed, they've escaped, and now there's hundreds roaming Colombia right now. <laughs> <laughs> DEANarcos.com. You guys can find out where they're going to be speaking. You can go check out Steve and Javier. Speaking of history, where is the 80-year-old cold case that occurred prior to World War II the world's most high-tech commercial airline with secret military-grade engines, Pan Am Flight 229 Hawaii Clipper with 15 passengers and a crew headed to Hong Kong from San Francisco with $3 million in gold-backed banknotes. Gentlemen, how could the findings in this change our history books on the start of the war? Well, you know, I'm just you mentioned that i got goosebumps here. I, this is... Uh, we're Javier and I are the lead investigators for this operation. We're not the the creators of this. Uh, Guy Nofsinger is a retired uh, naval intelligence officer that got all this started, and he's been working on this thing for 20 years. I think a little over 20 years. But uh, just prior to COVID, I got to go over with them to Micronesia. Uh, to the if you know if you're a diver, you've probably heard of Truck Lagoon. It's supposed to be one of the best wreck diving sites in the world, and that's part of Micronesia in the South Pacific. Um, and so what we're trying to do is find the, the bodies of the 15 Americans that were on the Hawaiian Clipper when it disappeared. So, and, and this is a long story, so I'm just going to give you, here's how that would change history. If we can prove all this and we're, and we're preparing our fifth and final trip to the country of Chuk, C-H-U-K, hopefully later this year, if we can prove this, the first skyjacking in the history world will, of the world will be the Hawaiian Clipper. The first act of war against the United States by the Japanese will not be Pearl Harbor. It will be the skyjacking of the Hawaiian Clipper because there were military officers on board in 1938. So three years prior to Pearl Harbor. Um, and this is the, it, the a cool thing is that we may actually finally bring an answer to the families of those 15 Americans that disappeared. But then we have circumstantial evidence. We don't have any direct evidence yet that we think that $3 million was going to be used to give to the Japanese to pay his ransom to get Amelia Earhart back, who disappeared in 1937. So this could actually bring a definitive answer of the mystery of what really happened to Amelia Earhart. What a story. 
It's cool. <laughs> you know, you know what, listeners, outside of Pablo Escobar, their book, they have a world speaking tour. They're working on this cold case. These two guys actually have a podcast too. I don't know where you guys find the time. The Game of Crime podcast, Evil is Coming, intense and fascinating true crime stories in the world. Talk about the show. Well, just real quickly, it's a weekly true crime podcast. We have a, a guest on every show, just like you're doing, Tommy. Uh, we bring in mostly good guys, but we do bring in a few former bad guys to tell their stories. And here's the difference between our show and most other true crimes uh, uh, podcasts is we don't tell you their story. We bring them on and let them tell you their story. Mm. It's long form. Our podcast, can, the interview can last as I think we had uh, Dave Reichert, who was the lead investigator of the Green River serial murder case. That one lasted almost five hours. Typically, our podcast, the episodes are uh, roughly three hours. We divide it into two parts. The first one comes out Monday morning. Second part comes out on Wednesday, uh, Thursday morning. So you hear the entire podcast in the same week. But it's been, uh, I'm just shocked by the popularity of it. <laughs> you know, we've been in an Apple's top 200 in the true crime genre. Uh, people all around the world, uh, we get, well, you know how it is. You get a lot of fan mail and it's, you know, it's really good for your ego. Probably doesn't mean anything, but, but we love our listeners and it's, it just keeps going. And, and that's the cool thing, you know, Javier now, and we co-host with a guy named uh, Morgan Wright, who's a former Kansas state trooper and detective out there. Uh, who's now this cybersecurity expert world renowned. He's on TV all the time, especially right now with what's going on in, in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but between the three of us, we have a list of contacts that's, it is a finite list, but I don't see it reaching the end for several years because of the law enforcement contacts we have around the world. It's just phenomenal. I mean, you even some that you've had on your show, Jay Dobbins, Lou Velozzi from ATF, both those guys are superheroes, undercover legends. Uh, we've had both them on the show and um, come and listen to for yourself. See what you think, you know, Morgan, we, you know, we try not to give you too much of a hard time because he was a state trooper, but hey, he was a state trooper. I mean, is that a real police officer? <laughs> yeah, they say they are, and I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, troops. So just kidding, guys. <laughs> I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that, the podcast as well. One last question I forgot to ask back on the Pablo thing. After Pablo's death, did the crime and murder rate go down or did it take a while for it to, or is it still not down? It, yes, it went down for for about a month. <laughs> but the car bomb stopped. The indiscriminate assassinations by Pablo Escobar, that stopped. And I think what Colombia wanted, it was just the car bombs were just, you know, killing a lot of innocent people. So that stopped. However, however, after Pablo Escobar, what happens? Cali Cartel took it over. And it was the same type of story again. Yeah. And if we could say, Tommy, um, and, and we just like to point this out to anybody to listen to us. A lot of people call Javier and I heroes. We're not heroes. We were just a couple of professional law enforcement guys that got to work a big case. The real heroes in this whole thing are the Colombian National Police because they took their country back from this mass murderer. That's what Pablo was. I mean, a guy who was responsible for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine. I mean, think about it. Would you like to have 80% of the podcast market? Oh, I, I know we would. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Joe Rogan. Who's Joe Rogan? We, we got this other thing going, yeah. right? And uh, again, Colonel Hugo Martinez, his son, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, they're both uh, deceased now, but great, great heroes in Colombia. And visit Colombia. It's beautiful. Believe it or not, it's beautiful. Yep. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on, talking about 
all the stuff you guys have going on and giving my listeners some insight into the book, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. It's been great talking with both of you. Thank you so much, Tommy. Yeah, you made this a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Tommy. Appreciate it, buddy. You guys are welcome. Follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast and follow me anywhere podcasts are found. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin chin. <laughs>